The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. And we're live. Welcome to the Clean Power Hour Live. I'm Tim Montague, your host. Check out all our content at cleanpowerhour.com. Give us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. That is what helps others find this content, which is so vital for the energy transition. We are growing at one podcast, one live broadcast at a time. We have so much great solar, wind, energy storage uh, electrification of transportation news coming to you every week. So check it out. And welcome to the show, John Weaver, commercial solar guy and journalist for PV Magazine. We also have robots. Lots of robots. You can't have too many robots. Yeah, you probably could, but for a while we're good. For a while we should have a lot more robots. I want uh, I want a personal assistant robot that follows me around and takes care of all of my Becks and calls. So give me that, Tesla. So, so this morning, I was having a conversation with, um, you know, as I was writing for PV Magazine, I had Adam from Whaling City Solar. He joins Michael and I, uh, Michael Gallant. He's my editor. As we, he and I write, Michael and I write, and then Adam does his morning sales business, catching up on leads, and we just chat. And uh, one thing we were talking about was this new uh, open or chat GPT. It's an open, yeah, and and we were talking about it, and one of the logics was is that you should have an AI tool to help you summarize the news, and but then you're going to start to have AI tools which will argue with you online, and so you're going to have to use an AI tool to argue back against the AI and somehow detect if it's AI versus a human, so you know when to waste your time with them or not to waste your time with them, because... You, of course, don't want to waste your time with a troll. And so, you know, having a little robot or an AI or something might become a commonplace thing combined with, you know, human curators that you also follow so that you make sure you get news that you trust as best as you can. Because, you know, it's going to start to get tricky. You know, if we have tools that can create text that's 99% right, knows how to manipulate it just a tiny bit to trick us and take advantage of us and people are going to do it. Absolutely. Uh, you know. And and these, these narrow AIs are getting very good at creating content. Now they are, there's, you know, article generating AIs, there's blog post generating AIs. And you can imagine how, if you have a nefarious cause uh, and you want to spread fake news, you just set that thing loose and it'll generate credible looking journalistic style stories, but are full of fake news. Right. And people are reading it going, Oh, this must be real. So humanity does have a problem on its hands. We've we've outsmarted ourselves, and now we're going to go in further into the abyss, probably uh, for a little while until we figure out how to detect. I mean, not only that, John, but the video automation robots too, right? You can you can make a video of any talking head. You can make Barack Obama or 
Joe Biden or any. I mean, what makes us what makes me think that you are actually the Tim Montague? That's right. I mean, you you could be would not know. I could be a robot right now. You could be on an island somewhere sipping tea and like I'm making money off John Weaver left and right. (laughs) (laughs) That is my goal in life. Make money off of John Weaver. (laughs) Left and right. Left and right. It's. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get into uh, the news, John. We've got a lot of news to cover. Uh, it's been a busy week. You found a a Rivian crashing. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that you found a Rivian is impressive because they're 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 not easy to find. I I've been trying to get my hands on one of these things, John. I've seen a couple of them around. I've seen at least two or three officially in the Boston area. So I I think that's pretty cool. Hey, it looks like we got a message. Do we get a message in the chat? In the oh, somebody say hi to us? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Chris Lutman. Chris. Tell Chris I said hi. No, I can say, hey Chris, what's up? Chris is cool. If you need solar panels, Chris represents Hyperion Solar. Chris, they can't have good products. Well, can you hear me, John? I can hear you fine. Huh. Oh. I don't know what the So yeah. Is. So this is a, a Rivian. And my joke was that this is a new wireless charging technique. You should have started with that, with my lead. You messed it up. Tim, come on. You got to help me out. What, what, say that again. This is the new Rivian wireless charging technique. <laughs> you know, you don't see any, you don't see any wires there. Um, I mean, luckily, it looks like they didn't damage the Rivian too badly. So I'm I'm happy for the owner. I feel bad for the uh, charging station there, which yeah. uh, took it on the chin. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Does the Rivian with those two little lights look like eyeballs and then a wide mouth going, ah, do you see that? See that little face in the middle, an upset, stressed out face yeah. with two short hands? Poor guy. Boy, that's a yep. take some imagination, but... Well, you know, it's it's this is going to slow us down with the uh, EV energy transition. You know, this is one less charger in the world. So EV drivers, you have a greater responsibility to ourselves. You got to uh, not run over the EV chargers, please. Preferably. And if you're listening and you own a gas station, please install electric vehicle chargers at your gas station. We just want chargers everywhere. And and then we can forget about range anxiety and broken chargers and all that. Um, but um, but yeah, like I said, I would love to get my hands on a Rivian, but it's it's not easy. So uh, good luck, Rivian. I, I I wish you the best, but you're going to have to crank up the volume. And it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. So. Let's talk about tariffs. This is my favorite topic, as you know. <laughs> and you've written a story in PV Magazine yep. about what's going on. What? Give us some context. Even with tariffs in place, there's still room for growth in solar installations by yours truly, John Fitzgerald Weaver. Um, what did the Commerce Department do last week and why is there still hope? So first, um, it is confirmed, and scroll down a tiny bit, there's a little chart that they put out. It is confirmed that several solar panel manufacturers are still circumventing the tariffs that were put in place in 2012 
against Chinese solar cells and Chinese assembled solar panels based on those cells. And so BYD, Canadian Solar, Trina, and Vena Solar, which is owned by Longi, their facilities in these countries are found to be circumventing the law of um, import tariffs, which were 15 to 200 plus percent. So, you know, so those factories are going to not, are not going to be able to be imported to the U.S. Uh, unless they're highly tariffed, like tariffed to the point where they probably won't be allowed, they won't make financial sense in the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's a lot of play and a lot of wiggle in this document as of yet. And it's not going to kill the utility scale solar market, is, which is key, or anyone else. It's not going to kill the market. So the import tariffs from the Oxen, Oxen, whatever the heck their name is, the company that doesn't actually make solar panels in the real world, uh, but filed this lawsuit probably because they got money from First Solar. Um, the uh, this company, they um, uh, their their trade tariff is not going to hurt us because there's a few things. One, for instance, Jinko was allowed to keep moving solar panels because. They've moved their solar cell manufacturing to Vietnam for their Malaysia or Cambodia factory. So Jinko, which is one of the big four, it's a Chinese company. They were allowed to keep exporting to the U.S. And Boviet Solar, which is owned by a Chinese conglomerate, was allowed to keep exporting to the U.S. from their Southeast Asia. So it just means that we're going to be able to get a lot of modules from Southeast Asia that aren't an issue. Hanwha, you know, they make panels in their under their Q-Cell brand to come into the United States and Southeast Asia for the utility scale market. And so there's a lot of space there as well. There's a second item, scroll up a little bit. There's a bullet point. So that second bullet point, the very end of it, what it says is that if two or more of the following components in the module, in the laminate, in the panel were produced in China, then that product is also tariffed. However, if four or more come from a non-China place, then that panel, which might have a Chinese solar cell, doesn't seem like it's going to be tariffed. So if silver paste, the frames, the glass, the back sheets, any of this stuff comes, then it seems like commerce is saying, hey, you know what? We're attacking cells because we want to differentiate, differentiate the global supply chain. But we also want to differentiate the global supply chain on silver. Silver paste, aluminum frames, glass, back sheets. So there's space for those two items for these manufacturers to come in. And then, and this is the biggest one, this tariff isn't implemented until June 6th, I believe, of 2024. So it's going to be hard for us to make cells, wafers, silicon within that time frame in the U.S., except for Q-Cells, who has the Moses Lake facility and, and stuff moving. but you know, maybe we can get some of these other components. Maybe we can get our panel manufacturing in place. Maybe we can do other things, including buying solar cells from China and assembling in the U.S. within two years. Well, now it's a year and a half. So it's going to be really hard to get a factory up by June of 2024. But even with the 2024 date, there's like a six-month window. Like you can have the product in the U.S. as long as it's going to get used within six months. So really, we have until the end of 2024 to get our collective solar panel manufacturing selves 
in order. And, I, you know, I was much more stressed about this tariff than I am now. And so I think commerce did a good needle threading saying, listen, we're going to push back against Chinese solar cells and wafers. We're going to keep our pressure on solar panels manufactured in China, but we're going to push this global supply chain. We're going to push this supply chain global and we're okay with Chinese money financing it, but it's going to go global. That's the key. And so that's really what I get the insinuation from this document is. And, and this is preliminary. So in March or May of next year, they're going to put out their final ruling with some guidance and there could be refinements. Uh, but this, it doesn't seem like it's a, uh, a killer of a deal. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's just going to keep pressure on China to keep pushing globally. I'm curious what you think about why some of these big companies are still circumventing. <laughs> um, it seems very risky to me, but maybe the U.S. market is so small in the greater scheme of things that even if they get busted, so to speak, um, you know, like Canadian Solar and Trina, right? I mean, talk about companies that have all the resources in the world and can be more savvy about these things. Why do they bother breaking the rules? Maybe they know how the rule system works and they know that it would take 10 years for the rules to catch up with them. And maybe they also recognize, listen, Jinko Solar circumvented initially and then slowly moved their solar cell factory outside of the nation. So maybe they saw, you know, different nuances and were looking in that direction. Maybe they thought that getting the solar panel manufacturing out of the country was enough because, you know, arguably it was enough for a decade, a decade it lasted. And then at some point, someone said, all right, it's the next stage to attack. So arguably they have globalized the solar panel manufacturing supply chain. Not arguably, they have partially globalized the assembly line and now it's funny because it's only modules coming to the United States. So we're paying a premium because we want panels moved out of the nation state of China and, uh, well, the state. Um, and so, you know, there's dynamics there. There's a dance there. And uh, how that works exactly, I don't know. I don't I mean, know. The U.S. It's, is about, what, 10% of the global market for solar panels? Is that right? We'll be a little less. No, we'll be like spot on to that this year. We're going to be in the 20-ish. We'll be a little less. Yeah. We'll be in the 20 to 25 range. And we might have 250 to 260 gigs. So 8 to 10, 9 to 10. So I, you know, I, I, I would argue we're not big enough to break big time rules, but we're important enough that it's okay to test the rules and see what happens. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're upbeat about it. And um, we will see you in March. So stay tuned. We'll be covering this story periodically. Let's talk about the the net zeroing of your carbon footprint by buying an EV. There's forces at work in the universe, John, who want us to believe that EVs are not actually good for reducing our carbon footprint, right? You can imagine 
who those forces might be, a.k.a. the oil giants, the oil majors, right? They want us to keep guzzling gasoline, which is a sure ticket for uh, just probably hundreds, not decades, but hundreds of years of climate chaos. Yep. And um, so anyway, you found a story in PolitiFact, which I've never heard of, by the Pointer Institute. What is the Pointer Institute? Is it a think tank or what? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, But they they address this issue, and what did they find? Um. They they really just they they did a collection of the three or four groups in this article, and they looked at research that I've seen, and I saw a nice update to it. But if you scroll down, there's about three paragraphs that matter, and they give uh, some varieties of analysis for how long it'll take for an electric vehicle charging on the U.S. grid to offset the emissions that. Or, or to catch up with the emissions to um, uh, buying a gas car. Before I and, scroll down, can you do you see this? This is a Toyota. This photo must not be from the United States because Toyota isn't selling EVs in the United States. But uh, I, I, I'm glad to see a Toyota with a with a plug on it. I mean, it, it says be. it right there at a press event in Tokyo. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, the EQ. Um, a compact EV. Yeah, so they have it right there. The estimates are in the fifteen to 20,000 range, and you can see them from the different groups when we scroll down. And roughly, once you cover that much mileage in your EV, you've offset the carbon emissions generated to build it. And now you're racing against those SUVs and doing your best. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in... Um, yeah, so that's a fake, fake one here. Hmm. This one's wrong. I mean, this literally is the article saying this is an incorrect statement. Yeah. It's not seventy-eight thousand kilometers. That's more um, than twice, two, three times, three times the amount. Yeah. yeah. So if you, uh, yeah, so there's some math by some people who I respect, and here we go. So we got Auk way down at the bottom, Hoekstra. He, I don't actually don't know how to say his last name. But uh, I, I chat, chat with him on Twitter. He says 16,000 miles for a break-even. We got Zeke, who's breakthrough. He says 15,000 miles. Reuters and another group said 13,500. Um, so we have a collection of people, 15 to 18, 15 to 20,000 miles is what it's going to take before your EV is solid. And it makes me sort of happy because I'm at like 13,000 already, 13 and a half. I guess... You know, I'm probably end up at 20,000 miles on the year. And so in year one, my car will be offset and solid. Yeah. And that makes me happy. That means I'm using it. I'm not wasting the battery because that matters. I don't want to have a big giant battery that sits around and steals from the global necessity. And I don't have a, I don't have a battery or I don't have, I'm not doing my job. You know, I'm buying a thing and letting it waste. That's bad consumerism. I don't want to do that. So, uh, so it's good. It's good that this is done. And it's good that, you know, this math is there, you know, it just helps me realize, all right, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of help. I'm doing my part. Well, and the cool thing about electrification of transportation is that 
the the time is near when it'll be more economical to buy and own an EV than it is an ICE engine vehicle. And then the ICE just goes, it just disappears, right? Because consumers want what's more affordable, period. As long as it's a decent vehicle with decent range, right? Which we're there. We have the tech. And these are million-mile vehicles, maybe two million miles. Um, they're going to last longer, many fewer moving parts. So um, they're grasping at straws, creating fake news about the carbon footprint of EVs. And they're in trouble, and they know it. And there's going to be stranded assets. And that's life. So let's talk about robots again briefly. You found a photo, which I couldn't see, but I found a, I found a similar Hey, let one. me share it. This, I, I like can. this one. This you one's can. cool. You can. Go for it. All right. Hey, everybody. This is John Weaver. I'm sharing. I want to let you know how, uh, how good I am at sharing. This is just a robot picking some apples. And I'm going to hit the play button. And it just looks cool because it's at night and there's some neat lights. But, you know, we're going to like, you know, people pick these apples right now and people pick strawberries. And 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 I don't want to take away from farmer jobs, of course, and I don't want to take away from picker jobs, but they're hard jobs. And uh, and this is, you know, human population is getting tighter relative to the amount of work we're doing. But this is just another beautiful piece of code and mechanical construction and computer vision and computing and all these different sciences, sciences tied together. And this is, this is us picking some apples in the dead of night when, you know, us human beings need to rest and bam, just picking some apples and doing good work. And I just thought the video was neat. It had this weird little motion to it that made me almost scare it, like scared of it, like the Terminator. But this is, uh, I don't know, this is the future. This is a piece of the future, and we're going to see a whole bunch of it. Yeah, and I mean, so, you can see how a robot like this could install solar panels, right? I, it, it's a nice platform. I like the four wheels. Um, you know, it, it could easily roll over much of the terrain that is used for solar. And we're going to, need, mean, we're going to need robots to install solar panels. Um, I mean, even if you had a robot hanging out with the two guys, handing them the panel, so that they could then slide it into place and boom, 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 hit the four, you know, hit the uh, mid and center clamps. And, you know, even that would assist because you don't have to go back to the pallet. You don't have a separate person driving a vehicle. You can just slide, slide, slide. You know, I watched some of the guys who, some of the people doing the installs and they have fun racing, you know, competitive, you know, as long as we pay them well, of course. But, you know, it's something, it's something interesting. So I, uh, I just thought this was a cool video and, just reminded me that, you know, we're, and, and it's also, you know, it's the same week when we have AI stuff going on left and right. You know, I, I use um, a couple of AI images in a um, in an article for PV Mag to, uh, to come up with an image of a, a certain moment where we tried, you know, we just had some paragraphs. I wanted to get an image in there and it was cool looking and it, it met the purpose. And, you know, these are tools that complement us. They're going to replace some of us, like arguably the, the biggest killer of engineers ever, Microsoft Excel and AutoCAD, because now you didn't need 20 people to do a building. You need three. You know, the biggest killer of accountants, Microsoft Excel, the biggest killer of lawyers, online database that you could search, you know, JSTOR. Um, you know, these things are 
we got to integrate them and use them. And uh, you got to use these robots. Hopefully they don't take over, but maybe they will. Yeah, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We want we want narrow AI. We don't want AGI. Um, unfortunately, our ours and China's militaries are going hard after it as fast as they can to invent an AGI, right? And it will take off. And who knows what's on the other side of that? Uh, nobody truly knows, but it's probably pretty scary. Um, but let's talk about a high wire act. This is the project of the week. This is definitely the uh, strangest solar installation I've ever seen. So I love that about this. And do you know what it is that these gentlemen are creating? I don't. I just like the pretty pictures. It looks like one of these cool agrovoltaic systems, yeah. which are, you know, 10, 12, 20 feet above the food. And instead of having a big, heavy racking system, they're using cables, steel cables to support it. Yeah. And I think that's cool because there's another set in the back. So I, I don't think it's like a one-off on a power line or something. And it's I a think tracker it's a, also, it looks like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a tracker too. Yeah. yeah. That, that There's a rod that goes from it. So yeah. So I thought it was a tracker. Um, and there's a few images, two or three, but, um, but yeah, it would be, it'd be cool to... Uh, this is to in know China? what's going on. Yeah, I believe so. Now look at that. Using ropes to bring it up. You got a bucket of screws there, mid clamps or something. Yeah, it's uh it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I thought so. I thought that was cool. Talk about a hard day's work. Um <laughs> <laughs> being constantly worried about falling. I mean, I guess they're not falling. Too far. I mean, obviously they're wearing safety harnesses, also, but but uh, it's but it's still extra labor and thought and movement to manage yourself in this setting. Yeah, and so totally. gotta respect that. Gotta gotta respect the, the installers. Good work. Yeah, so I, I just thought it was neat. You gonna get up on some ropes now, Tim? Thinking about it. Yeah, my insurance doesn't let me do it. My insurance company's really mean. They're like, "Have you ever visited a project site? Said to take pictures." Really? Did you go during the construction? No. <laughs> or it didn't go on site. They're like, sure. Like, yeah. You know, I got to be careful around those. Uh, you know, insurance is expensive, dude. The difference for workers comp for Benji, yeah. who does go on sites, yep. but doesn't work. And me, it's like, it's like 50, it's like a thousand percent difference in workers comp costs between uh, the general contractor who has to do site over uh, site oversight. And the sales guy slash photographer just it's like, Oof, I get it. So the Biden-Harris administration announces winners of California offshore wind energy auction. Just yesterday, this story yeah. came out. And story is from the Department of the Interior. Original source there, buddy. Very good. What, uh, what happened? What's the good news? So this is the first California offshore wind auction. And we now have five companies. If you scroll down a little bit, I think they do a breakout. They might show the leases, lease areas, but I don't think they show that. I think they just show a chart of the companies. There you go. And uh, they show you how many acres, 
you know, we're talking tens of thousands. They gave you the bid amount where, you know, even the second one, look at the second one, California North floating wind. And um, these are people who plan to build some large scale solar or large scale wind. And the, let's see, they're looking for 4.6 gigs of capacity. So, man, and this is just for the lease going to Bureau of Land Management. I don't know if this money goes to California too. I'm not sure how it's spread out, but this is just people paying for the ocean. Tim, people are paying for the ocean. You know how much ocean we have, Tim? We have so much ocean, we can power the world like 50 times with wind power. Well, yeah, seventy percent of the world is is ocean. So we we um, we have lots of ocean. I, I want to talk about these companies briefly. RWE, that's a German company, to my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, they're also a solar developer here in North America. California North Floating, don't recognize those guys. Equinor, that's the Norwegian oil major, uh, now a wind energy major, and a solar developer as well in North America. Central California Offshore Wind, have never heard of them. Uh, who knows? And then Invenergy, a Chicago company, actually, uh, utility wind and solar developer. So good to see some familiar faces on this list going after the right. offshore market in California. So the um, the north uh, floating one is owned by Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. Ah. That's a huge, yep. huge infrastructure investment group. And I think the last one is Orsted. Because I remember uh, Jordan Shoesmith, who's an Orsted guy, announced it. I think Orsted. Let me double check before I mess up his company name and he finds me and beats me up. Central California. Orsted is a Danish company too, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Offshore Wind LLC. So who is this one? So the Scandies are in uh, three out of the five here. Central. Um. Yeah, I don't see a name for for this one, but it, this could be a uh, uh, Jordan Shoesmith, who he works for, um, big company, and it's one of the big names. So it's uh, it, it could be Orsted, it could be I can't remember, uh, might not be them though, but it's one of the big names. So it's it's not some random bunch of dudes throwing in applications. Well, right. bunch random bunches of dudes rarely have hundred million dollar plus uh, dollar amounts available for. <laughs> <laughs> leases of the ocean. So, so that's what it is, man. It's just a big, it's just a big, nice lease. You know, we're going to have tens of gigawatts off the shore, maybe even hundreds of gigawatts of capacity of wind feeding California. And that's going to be awesome because they already have massive amounts of solar. If California and the whole West coast jumps on the offshore wind and the East coast jumps on the offshore wind, and we got the huge swath of uh, land-based wind in the Midwest, Man, that's just going to be really good for our for our transition to you know clean KWHs and cars. You know, if we have we have a lot of wind blowing in the winter time, that's really great for us because, of course, we know the solar doesn't. You fill up our batteries, fill up our cars, uh, fill up our hydro, you know, our pumped storage, whatever we got to do, and you know, then we start building a bunch of geothermal. Oh man, it's going to work. It's just, it's going to work. That's that's what, you know, the 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 best emotion of it is. So so that's it. I just I just wanted to talk about it a little cuz I I like offshore wind. It has the potential to fix our problems. It's just as important as solar and it's it's probably going to move a little faster than solar, but I don't know about that. Maybe. 
but well, it's, it's going to be huge. I want to highlight this other story from the uh, DOI, and that is that uh, Secretary Holland announced new steps to accelerate solar energy development on public lands. Uh, this is this is a great story, although you know this this mostly applies to the western part of the U.S. where there are huge tracts of yeah. uh, mostly BLM land, Bureau of Land yes. Management. Um, but they're basically they're developing a solar programmatic environmental impact statement, um, which will help accelerate and continue momentum for the clean energy economy. The BLM is also initiating reviews of three proposed solar projects in Arizona that could add one gigawatt of clean energy to the grid. But the long and short of it is they're they're trying to expedite permitting on public lands for solar uh, or solar and wind. I don't know if this applies to wind. They called out solar for sure. And I think this is a good thing. Um you know, we use our we use our public lands for mining, for oil drilling, and gas exploration, and it's and it's also appropriate to use our public lands for clean energy. Um, much much easier on the environment than all those other extractive industries. I do plan on covering that article actually for PV Mag. See if I can delve into some details on the Arizona project and what some of these rules might be. Cool. Uh, the the, the administration currently has 25 gigawatts as a goal to be deployed in public lands by uh, 2025-ish, by before they're done. So that's they have some aspirations, and this is part of it, I guess. they got three more years of pushing projects, approving them, getting things going. Yeah. Two more years, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> we have a story from Billy Lutt at uh, Solar Power World. Senate bill <laughs> introduced to incentivize solar carport deployment in California. I love this. Um, you know, we have a huge amount of parking lots. So something like a third of the space in urban environments is parking lot today, John. And no better way to utilize the, that resource than to put carports on it. The reason we're not doing that yet in droves is because carports are relatively expensive. Um, sometimes twice as expensive as regular rooftop or ground mount solar. So, so what's the what's the story? So first, I want to say something about Billy. Okay. Billy is one of the um, editors at Solar Power World. And, you know, we love Solar Power World, the two Kellys and Billy. Um, but something funny about Billy's uh, Twitter profile, he's listed as the tallest person in solar media. Tim, what do you think about that? How tall is he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're gonna, I'm we're gonna six have to... four, but... Uh... But maybe he's six eight. I mean, I've never met yeah. Billy. Have you not? Have you met him? I don't think I have. I'm sure I've seen him. But we're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to tweet him and say, "Hey, uh, we we don't we don't Billy. What's up with that? Uh, how tall really are you? That's you funny. the tallest person uh, in solar media. I love it. We're talking about you. I'm gonna tweet him right now. There you go. On our podcast, I'm wondering how tall Senator Josh Becker. From San Mateo, introduced Senate Bill 49, incentivizing solar carport development at the state capitol, um, meaning that's where the uh, the bill was introduced, not where the incentives will go. But, one incentive for one carport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure something crazy like that has happened before, but. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so 
So I haven't covered this yet. miles in L.A. alone, dude, right? How There's many? 21? 101 square miles of parking lots in Los Angeles County. Okay, so let's do some stupid rough math. So 100 miles, 100 square miles, let's simplify it, 640 acres per mile. So now we're talking 6,400 6, acres. 64 times, no, 640 yes. acres times 100. 40,000 acres. Yes. So 100, just so I don't look acres. foolish. That's the size uh, of the county I live in, in central <laughs> Illinois. So 64,000 acres is, is our number Car- here. Of parking lots. Now. That is so nuts, dude. Roughly, you can get one megawatt on a carport for every two acres because the angles are lower and they're very tight. So we divide that by two acres. Yep. We could fit 32 gigawatts yep. of solar on Los Angeles parking lots, dude. Gigawatts. Yep. That's like a third of the, that's not a third. That's a quarter of the solar installed in the United States. <laughs> yeah. I've I've seen documentation that says if we covered all the two billion parking spots in the United States with solar, it could cover the US electricity usage. It's another one of those dumb stats. They and it's so just like, how oh my god. this gosh. incentive work though? What do you know is it a is it a feed-in tariff or I'm going to have to learn uh SB49. You're going to see an article on it soon uh where I break down the details to see what's in it, see how they break do it. So so I don't know how the structure of it yet is. And of course, you're a developer who actually, you know, you're in the weeds. So you give a damn about the numbers. So that's good. Everybody listening, this is what a question that a real developer asks. How's it structured? Just having an incentive doesn't mean anything. How's it structured? Because now we got to sell it. So, so good question. Well, good story. I look forward to learning more about that. And, you know, as California goes, so goes the rest of the country. Eventually, they're just at the fore of it. And, um, we, you know, we have, we've already put buildings and roads on 6% of the landscape in the United States, right? <sighs> That's what we call the built environment. We only need one to 2% all said to completely green the grid and generate all of our energy from solar or solar and battery. And so using the already built-on built environment is a complete no-brainer. It's, it's the best form of solar, right? I, I, I'm a proponent for converting farm fields to solar farms also, but I would rather put carports on parking lots, like any day, gladly. And it's, that's where the population is, right? So that's where the load center is. It's such a win-win. Um, but it's expensive, And that's why everybody wants a carport until they look at the price tag and they go, oh, maybe not. Um, And that affects the PPA price that I can offer. I would love to do ginormous carports, but I can't give a PPA always that is going to save the customer money on that carport project. So, yep, we had a bunch of carports. That were supposed to happen on on our Walmart portfolio that we built at Continental a couple of years ago, and all the carports disappeared because of financials. Unfortunately, they were in the initial permitting, but there's other carport dynamics too. Though um, people buy parking lots uh, for more than just initial revenue generation, they look at them as real as speculative real estate. And if they have enough 
revenue generation from the carport uh, that could cover the taxes and maybe the loan and maybe not profit, they're okay with owning the asset because potentially some developer might come along and say, all right, that parking lot's no longer just a parking lot. It's a 50-story building. It's a 30-story, 20-story, and its value just went up from you know, X dollars per acre by 10X, 100X. So, <clears throat> so I'll buy that carport from you or that, not that carport, that parking lot. Well, once, and so we, when you dr- once we get robo-taxis, people are not going to want to own a car. Now, will this be three years or 20 years? Anybody's guess, right? Yeah. Elon keeps promising the robo-taxi, but Elon keeps falling short of that promise. Even so though far, even yeah. though he's all excited about the wide release that finally happened. I mean, I can remember, John, it was a year and a half ago when you were anticipating that wide release. And I mean, I'm like, come on, bro. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's my one, that's my one pet peeve with, with Elon, I think is that he does overpromise sometimes. And, but anyway, once that happens, once we get robo taxis that can fully self drive, Say ninety percent of the time, parking lots change. You just want transportation as a service, right? You just order the taxi; it shows up, boom, and then we don't need all those parking lots. And what then? So, if you're a parking lot owner, that real estate—I mean, it's still valuable real estate, right? Because it's in the city, a lot of it. But well, I want to see the energy centers is a great idea. I'd love to see these parking lots go away and then the city densities increase a little and, or these open spaces turn into little parks or something, you know, we can do better. We can do better. You know, New York city, there's no parking. So, you know, they'll, they'll take that parking and turn it into uh, you know, inside of buildings, they'll make another floor or the parking spots on the side of the road. They'll turn them into bike lanes and walk pathways and restaurant spots or street parks. I mean, there is you know, that, there is parking in New York. It's just vertical, right? It's 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 these multi-story parking structures. You don't see big old big open parking lots. No. Yeah, um, I mean, they need to turn that into buildings. They need to get more people living local. Some supermarkets. New York City needs some more supermarkets. Uh, big supermarkets with big aisles of fresh fruit. Picked by robots. So, so the IEA has uh, updated their forecast, the largest revision ever. Yeah, suddenly over the last six months, they put out two big projections. They sim- they uh, speculated that the U.S. was going to install 250 gigawatts this year, which was a huge jump from their like 160 gigawatts that might get installed. And last year we installed 160. We installed 180. So like EIA was just like way behind the curve. And they've always been behind the curve. But now suddenly something occurred in the EIA. Somebody went to the gentleman's, the boss there. His name is like Faith Baral. I, I don't know his exact name. But and they made him switch from oil to lichen renewables. <laughs> and so in the last six months, they put out major revisions to their modeling. And here you can see their modeling on this chart where you can see the number just increase. And these are even increases from prior years. So you know, you can see that flat line, which is so weird. They they have these projections where then it flattens out, right. and they're like, "Oh yeah, we're going to stay that for a while." So that was their pro- so that was their projection that we'd be stuck there for a decade at two nineteen, and then they said, "Oh, 
Well, no, maybe it'll be higher. I don't know. Maybe it'll be higher. But all these projection adjustments have occurred in the last three years. I was like, what has changed in the last two or three? Yeah, now it's like, whoosh. Yeah, it went from 309 in 2025, 309 gigawatts to 412. That's a- no, but go to the original line. It was 219. Right. And I bet you if you look back at their 2015 and 10 projections, they were at like 100. So they have an issue projecting future growth. They have had because they said it's based on the current political climate. All right. But now something's changing. And so if the IEA is pushing these numbers in this way, the thing about them is that they are looked at as a respected source by the political bodies. Mm -hmm. And if now this company, this group of analysts is saying this, then it's it's buckle up time because if the politicians are back in the big respected sources and everybody feels safe, stooping it, uh, pushing it. You know, I saw an article a few months back where China was considering pushing more solar because they saw it as a tool to pump their economy. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge step. You know, we're going from having to support solar because renewable and this and that, and it's, and it's, you know, it's expensive, but we'll do it anyway because it's good for the world and the politics matter. Now we're saying, hey, this thing's really good for us and it's good for the economy. That's like if, if the government starts saying, all right, more solar incentives, got to pump the market. Woo, that sounds awesome. Well, for me, you know, great. Put out another incentive. I will bang on some doors, man. So I just, this is where we're in a period. And right now, uh, you know, where the projections right now are already pushing 260 gigawatts this year. We might see, I, I'm, you're hearing me say it, but we might see 400 gigawatts deployed next year. Mm. We're definitely going to be in the middle 300s. We're going to have by the end of next year, 500 gigawatts of capacity. So, no, wait. you know, what's going to... We already have a terawatt. No, pardon me. 500 gigawatts of manufacturing capacity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, so thing it's, that, the thing that scares me is that China is in, is building half of the global renewable power capacity between 2022 and 2027. This is a uh, a huge threat. And as we have been discussing, it is an economic opportunity and it's a missed opportunity if you don't get in that game. The, the transition is happening, like it or not. Right. It's just a question of how much do you want to capture of that growth and then reliability. Right. It's it's a it's a much safer grid, ultimately, when you make a grid of solar wind and batteries. Um, Sun comes up every day. Sun comes up every day for at least what a million more years anyway. (laughs) Um, Listen, my spreadsheet doesn't go that far. Uh, all right. Well, we only have time for one or two more stories, John. Um, it's been a it's been a busy week. Battery packs officially up per Bloomberg. Not expected to drop again until twenty twenty four. You want to talk about batteries? We haven't talked about batteries. 
Sure. So we saw pricing go up. There's a nice little chart in here uh, that they always put out. Uh, but we saw the pricing of battery packs increase by about 7% in real terms. And so I think that accounts for inflation. Um, <clears throat> and this is the first time. Well, let me look that up. Inflation, real terms versus nominal. So this is a story in uh. Bloomberg. It says lithium-ion battery pack prices rise for the first time to an average of $151 per kWh. I'm always confused by this because, you know, $150 per kWh is kind of the holy grail, I thought. But I mean, it where, depends on where, what, what, what you're talking about. Are they talking about the cost of manufacture or the total install cost or? So this is for a battery pack. This doesn't include like uh, control systems. This is battery cells inside of a container. Yeah. So this like, for instance, for grid tied stuff, there's another doubling in cost uh, before we can install it at the grid. For a car, that's a good number. In fact, if you scroll down in the article, the price of a standard car is even lower than that number, than that 151. It's like 138 or so for a standard uh, battery electric vehicle. So it's, um, I mean, we're, well, I mean, we could argue that we are already seeing the results of this being the holy grail and the fact that EVs are mostly sold out and it's hard to meet demand. And we're, you know, with even with pricing going up some, we're still seeing stuff happening. So. <clears throat> so what is the long and short of it with this story? Because it's, it's pointing out that, yeah, okay, there's inflation on the materials going into batteries. Um, and that's really what it is. It's the lithium carbonate cathodes. That's it. But, but the, the pull is so strong with the standalone ITC on storage, right? And the fact that we need these grid services. So, and the electrification of transportation, it's a both and, um, you know, demand is not going to go down because of a 7% increase. Uh, now, I did see that the state of California renegotiated the price of a PPA uh, due to inflationary pressures mm. for a battery system. So there are some pressures, and these developers are bidding so tight, so, so tight, and their costs are going up for delivered systems, you know, 10 15%. So it's... uh. So it's something that, you know, it is having an effect, but it's, you know, this may slow us down to having a fully backed up grid with batteries because right now we have batteries going in for strategic times, peak, peak periods where electricity is double and triple. You know, it's not going to slow down California with its weird electricity pricing and its very aggressive incentives and very aggressive requirements. But in places that are like, ah, I don't care about environmentalism. Let's just look at the numbers. You know, there'll be some people cut off. But, you know, by 2024, they're expecting the prices to start coming down again because they're going to start seeing lithium mining capacity come online. That affects pricing. And by 2026, we're going to see some huge, huge capacities globally, like a terawatt. And that's when we're going to start seeing 
the current price bubble maybe turn into a, you know, a collapse because we're going to see the capacity come online in massive volumes and the factories to process it in massive volumes. So if you're looking to, you know, it might be a great uh, commodity play from now until 2024, or maybe the price has already peaked because it flew up over the last year for lithium carbonate. But uh, it's got a couple more years of choppiness and then a couple years of, hey, we got volume. What's going to go on with pricing? And then right after that, we might start to see hard price falls because global capacities for mining and for manufacturing and processing are going through the roof. So we're just, we're getting a lot of batteries. It's going to slow down some projects. It's definitely going to push up the price of some projects, but the most attuned and the most in-touch people, you know, even Tesla increased the price of their car, they said, based on the battery pricing going up. Yeah. Well, as we see in the next story here, electrification of transportation is a real thing. It's happening, especially in Northern Europe. Here they're calling out Norway, which I think is the global leader on a percent basis, right? They've reached 89% total EVs, including plug-in hybrids. 80, well, no. 80, no, it's higher. Total PEVs, 89. 89%. 81 BEV, yeah. Um, so, But then if you look, they got hybrids. They, If you look at that percentage, it's actually... You know, they have diesels, hybrids, PHEVs, BEVs. And then the diesels are like, was it 4% or something? I don't know. But the numbers are so small for those other things. I mean, with all the hybrids and everything, it's it's a huge percentage. So we got seven. So we got diesels are two. That means gas is like a, a less than one. So that means hybrids plus PHEVs plus BEVs. And, you know, the hybrids are powered by gas so but still it's somebody buying an alternative structured vehicle we're talking 97 percent 97 percent of vehicles are alternative so that's something i think that's pretty cool well gasoline is expensive in norway it's probably 3x what it is here awesome and um cars are smaller although it is noteworthy that the Model Y is the most popular EV in Norway by a factor of three. <laughs> it's Jeez. just creaming VW, BMW, and Volvo, which I, I still find amazing. Um, cause, Where's the Model 3? Yeah, where is the Model 3? You'd think it would be popular too. Norwegians are very fond of small cars. Um, I don't see it on the list here. Can't be right. Maybe they're not making it in Europe at the Gigafactory yet, and they're just importing uh, yeah. the Model Y for now. But yeah. I also know that Tesla has a reporting thing where they only report at the end of quarters. And so sometimes they miss out on the monthly Norwegian uh, EV report. So this report comes out every month. And so sometimes the, the numbers can be a little uh, flumpy on a month-to-month basis for this report. Mm-hmm. Because there's got to be some Model 3s. I mean, there's a Ford Mach-E. And there's two Toyota. Even though that's a nice car. The Mach-E? Yeah, the Mach-E. At least it looks nice on the outside. Yeah. It's got I've some cool curves. Side by sides. It's, it's a decent car compared to a... It holds its own against the Model Y. I don't know why it's not 
why they can't mass produce them because Ford is a very popular brand in Norway also in general. It has a it has a long legacy in Norway. Uh, very popular brand, but they're not selling very many of them. Toyota's here though. Uh, I'm 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 trying I'm trying to stay positive about Toyota because um, if they don't make the transition to EVs, they're going to go belly up. Um, any company that doesn't get in the mass production of EVs is is bye bye. But anything else about this? Uh, I mean. This is this is this is a story that we've touched on numerous times, and you want to see the future? Go to Europe. That is but the future. That was why I shared this actually on Twitter when I saw it originally, and the comment that I made when I shared it there was: "There's a lot of hand wringing about EV charging infrastructure. It looks like we have a location to look at for guidance and see what they're doing, and so." We should be touching on this story next time. It's no longer going to be, hey, Norway's still 97%, which, which is terrible. I mean, every single month, we should celebrate once a month and be like, hey, let's check out how awesome Norway is. And we should do the same with like Iceland and they're like 99% geothermal. Hey, everybody, just want to remind you that Iceland is awesome. Norway is awesome. But now what we do have to look at is how is Norway continuing this? Because I saw another document that showed the stock of cars that were gas. And it's still like 70, 80, 90% gas cars. It's just that we're now switching out older cars and new cars are no longer coming in gas. So it's it's still got a, a big stock. The flow is though all clean now. So I think we should keep uh, referencing them as their stock of EVs starts to take over the flow of EVs and how they integrate that into their power system. I had a gentleman who said he pays uh, roughly five cents per kilowatt hour for electricity at home. And the public charging infrastructure is 90 cents per kilowatt hour for charging your car at a lot of places. That would highly motivate me to always be plugged in at home and never charge on the road. My current model of not having an, apart- of having an apartment without a charger would not be financially viable in Norway. Yeah. So I guess they make you own a house before they let you own an EV in Norway because I can't afford 90 cents per kilowatt hour for my car yet. <laughs> um, I'm curious about this story about PV Intel. We're going to wrap up the show here, but but yeah. uh, who is PV Intel? So PV Intel is a company that I have partnered with the founder of PV Magazine, Eckert Gross, to create. Okay, and I was it was if it was that initiative, and and so thank yeah. you for clarifying it. Well, I put this on screen. PV Intel announces solar development training consulting service. Very interesting. So we keep getting people, real estate people, um, landowners, um, you know, the entrepreneur types who want to learn how to develop their solar project, or develop a piece of land, or get into the field so that they can work in their region or something. And, you know, the purpose of PV Intel was really to first make some good solar data in the U.S. You know, look at the EIA, look at the queues and, and take that data, data and turn it into something. But we kept getting boutique consulting services as we consulting requests as we would work through sharing data. And so and we were expecting this when we when we did our original business plan, we said we're going to be 
data services plus boutique consulting, custom consulting. And one of the things we kept getting requests for was this um, uh, was this development training. So we've put together a curriculum, collecting tools in different places, saying, okay, if you want to do community solar in New York, and we're, we just so happen to start on community solar in a few regions, here are the tools that are available within this region to develop these projects. And here's the rough process. You know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to vet the grid. You're going to have to vet your zoning. And after you vet it, you know, then you're going to have to vet your local incentive program and the financial model. Once you do your high-level vetting, then you have to do your really hardcore specific, project-specific stuff. If you get through those checks, then you got to start spending big money and you got to pay for interconnection and you got to work into zoning. And as you go through zoning, these are going to be the things you have to deal with. And, you know, so, so the goal is to help people develop some small-scale solar projects on their own. And, and we put together, and I got Jason O'Leary, right, let me rephrase it, Dr. Jason O'Leary, who is kind of the program manager. He organizes everything. He's, he's really the guy who does all the work at PV Intel. Uh, we hang out and tell him what to do and try and catch up with what he has done. And we have a programmer that we recently hired. Uh, his name is Devin Giannani, guy I've worked with for a while. And that they're going to start working on this EIA data so that we can extract and distribute all of this wonderful solar data that's contained in the EIA. We want to show it off more and get it out to people and write articles about it and and just, you know, find nuances. Uh, but the first goal is going to be to do these consulting services and help people become developers if they want and train them. And we got a nice package of data. We got links. We got tools. We got spreadsheets. We got task lists. We got, you know, we work through a lot of stuff so that we can take care of people we think they want to do this. And uh, and so that's what we did. We launched it. Official launch, I think, December 1st. We put out the press release. Awesome. Well, I look forward to learning more and seeing how it works. And yep. I put it on screen. You can just go to PV in, pv-intel.com to learn more about that uh, platform. We also have PV Intel without a space. PV, just pvintel.com works too. We bought them. Very good. All yep. right, John. Well, we've uh, we've come to the end of our December eighth show. Uh, how can our listeners find you? Well, they can text you, and you have my phone number, and you can give them my number. How's that? <laughs> that sounds horrible. Commercialsolarguy.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, com. You contact us page. Uh, you can also call us at five zero eight four nine 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 sun, and uh, we're also on Twitter at Solar and Mass, and on LinkedIn, John Fitzgerald Weaver and Commercial Solar Guy. Uh, Tim, where in Illinois can we find you and track you down and knock on your door? Champaign, Champaign, Illinois. That is the home of uh, my my studio, my development activities. Everything that I'm up to in the world emanates from here. And, uh, but more importantly, go to cleanpowerhour.com and give us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. Check out our YouTube channel, subscribe to the show and reach out to us, cleanpowerhour at gmail.com, uh, or the contact us form on cleanpowerhour.com. Uh, anything like that works. And also find me on LinkedIn. Love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. 
I want to thank you, John, for being here and bringing us so many wonderful stories. I'm Tim Montague. Let's grow solar and storage. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more.